from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the theme has been to present Jesus Christ as the king, the Messiah, God's chosen king of Israel, well, and the whole world, actually. And Matthew begins by very carefully laying out the messianic credentials of Jesus. That's why the book starts with a genealogy. You don't typically start a book with a genealogy to get a lot of interest, but for a Jew reading this, it would have great interest because he links Jesus immediately to David and to Abraham, and then he fills that in, that genealogy. So from Abraham through David, from Solomon down to Joseph, who is Jesus' legal father. Second, he talks about the miraculous birth of Jesus and the announcement of the angels. That sets you into this uh, supernatural event is going on. Then the adoration of the wise men when they come and his deliverance from Herod the king who tried to destroy Jesus. So Jesus um, has all of these things just at the very beginning regarding his birth. And then suddenly it jumps to his adulthood when John the Baptist comes as the preparer of the way. So he heralded the coming of Jesus, and he said about himself that he was not fit to untie the sandals of Jesus. Now, John was a great prophet. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 that John was the greatest man that ever lived. So he's not, that great man is not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus Christ. So when John baptized Jesus at that moment, the heavens were opened and this voice came down and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So all of those things together are really setting us up for all that is to come. Right after his baptism, Jesus went into the wilderness and he was tested for 40 days and 40 nights, tempted directly by the devil, and he passed the test. So all of the initial qualifications are there for him. And then once the qualifications are established and all the preparatory information is presented, Matthew begins to reveal the authority of Jesus the Messiah by his words and by his deeds. So it, there's a little short section where it talks about him preaching and doing miracles. And then it goes right into the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. So that's Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And we're exposed to his teaching authority. Um, so it's not an exaggeration to say that that is the most profound and influential sermon that's ever been preached in the world. But what struck people at the time was the authority with which Jesus spoke, the things that he proclaimed, the things he taught. In fact, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, right at the end of the sermon, it says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. So authority permeates every word that Jesus spoke. Jesus' teaching was not like any religious message any first century Jew had ever heard. Jewish rabbis mainly taught by stringing together comments or opinions from great rabbis of the past and maybe still living that day, Jesus never quoted a rabbinical source. He never quoted another rabbi, not even once. And that would be very different. He spoke with authority, with his own authority. He never presents matters in any kind of ambivalent way. He has the answers, period. That's how he teaches. He makes 
complex matters, easy to grasp, and profound. And that's actually kind of amazing how he did that, being able to simplify things and make them very accessible to anyone without all kinds of thinking and processes and quoting and opinions and all of that kind of stuff. He's just telling it like it is. He exposed in that sermon and condemned religiosity without true righteousness. So he had teaching authority. And then right after that, Matthew chapter 8, we see that he has authority over all kinds of diseases and afflictions. So there's all sorts of healing stories there. And in one of those stories, he heals the servant of a Roman officer, a Roman centurion. And remember, he had a sick servant. So uh, to quote that, Matthew 8, 7, it says, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And do you remember what the centurion said? Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. So what did that centurion pick on, pick up on? The authority of Jesus over disease. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, we see that he has authority over the wind and the sea. Remember when he stilled the storm? So nature itself obeys him. So the disciples when that happens, they cry out and they're marveling. And they, they say, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Authority. Messiah has great authority. We even see his authority over demonic powers. They cringe in his pe- presence and they obey his commands. When he tells them to go, they got to go. In chapter 9, Jesus claims the uniquely divine authority to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins, but he says he can do that. Chapter 9, um, verse 6, uh, he, he's healing a man, and then they start to grumble about that. He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. So you see how authority is a theme there running right through all of that? Can you see how often the exercise of Jesus' authority causes people to marvel and be awestruck and things like that? Then in chapter 10, Jesus grants some aspects of his authority to his chosen 12 disciples so that they too can heal and have authority over demonic powers. Chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So Matthew, as his gospels unfolding, makes sure we all see the establishment of Jesus' authority as God's son in all sorts of areas, all all the key areas of life, and even in the spiritual realm. Well, you're thinking, well, he's God, right? So doesn't he have all authority? He does, but we're really looking at a specific kind of authority, a unique authority that belongs to the Messiah as the Redeemer and the Lord of men. 
In the Old and New Testaments, there's a number of references to the Messiah receiving a kingdom. In other words, authority is given to him. So yes, Jesus has all authority as God, but he's not doing God right now. He's being a human being. Now he's still, in essence, God. He doesn't stop to be God. But remember Philippians 2, it says he became a bondservant. So he's serving a purpose in this world as a human being. So in Daniel 7, it says that one like a son of man comes up before the ancient of days and he receives a kingdom. He's given that kingdom. Psalm 110, which is one of the great messianic psalms in the Old Testament, the, the Lord God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's definitely a position of authority he's giving him there. Peter, in his great Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, declares, he quotes Psalm 110, he quotes that passage, and then he says, therefore, now why would Peter say therefore after quoting the Old Testament? Because he's going to tell you how it applies. He's going to explain what the Lord said to the Messiah. So he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's a clear declaration on Peter's part. So, as man's representative, the Messiah has to be human. He has to be a man with a true human nature, born of the flesh. He lived as a man. He was tested as a man in the wilderness, and he passed that test, living a sinless life. So he's a pure, spotless individual. And he died the death of a man as a sacrifice, a pure sacrifice for sin. He was a man cruelly victimized by jealous, hateful passions of his enemies, his countrymen. He was a man oppressed and mocked and murdered. But he rose, which means he had authority over death itself. In the resurrection, he is vindicated and he has earned a place as our king and he has defeated all of our enemies. He triumphed over sin by never giving into it, and he triumphed over it for us by paying the penalty that we deserve. He paid the penalty for us. So he took God's wrath against sin upon himself as a human representative of our race. So you might want to turn briefly to Ephesians chapter 1 in your Bible. This really amazing chapter presents a, a really perfectly balanced Trinitarian um, description of our salvation, talking about the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each divine person's role is defined and explained regarding our salvation. I want to read to you from verse 7. We're just going to talk about the Son today, okay? So Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, meaning the Father purposed in the Son. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, 
In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. It's just an incredible passage. And then in verse 18, Paul returns to the subject of Jesus Christ, praying that we would really begin to understand what all of this means. And in explaining what Jesus means for, for the kind of the big picture of everything, Paul touches directly on the concept of authority as the Messiah. So if you go to the end of Ephesians chapter 1, and notice that it is after the resurrection and after the redemptive work is finished, he is awarded this uniquely messianic authority. So I'm going to read from verse 18. And Paul's just basically saying what he prays for. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Another amazing passage. So Jesus' authority is unbounded. It's over everything. Now again, he had authority by nature as God over all things. He had authority by right as the creator of all things. But he really, in a sense, relinquished or released that authority when Philippians 2 says he became a bondservant. He became obedient to the Father. So he actually, by living this perfect life and doing everything God wanted him to do, he earns this unique authority of the Messiah. It's given to him. This kingdom is given to him thus saving us and then leading us as one of us, as a human being. So it's part of the wonder of the gospel story. In purchasing our salvation with his blood, he rescues us, not so we can wander about doing our own thing, but so that we will be reconciled to God with Christ as our head and doing his thing. That's what we're saved for. So our salvation is purposeful as well as it is gracious. It's freely given, but there's a divine purpose in what we're supposed to be doing. Okay, so with all of that in mind, let's go back to Matthew chapter uh, 28, the very last verses of Matthew's gospel. And we have Jesus' own assertion of his authority that he earned by way of the cross and by way of the grave, which he overcame. And Matthew isn't really expanding on that authority because it's already It's all there. Everything's already been said, but he's explaining what it should mean for us, for you and for me. Okay? You know that you are saved for a purpose. And here's the purpose. Verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Stop right there. So he's telling his disciples here what they are supposed to be about. And obviously this is not just for the 12, because we talked about last week, this is probably being spoken at that meeting of over 500 
um, believers uh, in Galilee, that the resurrection rally, as I call it. So he's speaking to uh, all his disciples. It's for everyone. But what are we supposed to be about? What does he say? Make disciples. This text, verses 19 and, and 20, these final words of Jesus recorded by Matthew, it's commonly called the Great Commission. These are our marching orders. There are several things in this text, but there's really only one command, an, an imperative verb here, one command, and that is to make disciples. Now, when they translate Greek into English, a lot of times they sort of shift tenses and verbs and what they're doing in a sentence to make it easier for us to read. But all the other things here in the Great Commission that might read like verbs to us are not verbs, they're participles. There's only one imperative verb here, and that is make disciples. Even the word go is not a command, it's a participle. And what is, uh, when I say a participle, I mean it's flowing off the main verb. So the, the main idea is that command, make disciples, and all the other things are explaining that, what that means. Okay, so if you translated verse 19 literally, it would start like this, having gone, therefore, make disciples, because it's a participle at the beginning. So having done this, having gone out, you're to make disciples. Making disciples is the command. So it's really important. And that word is important, the word disciple. What does that mean? It means so much more than making converts. It's, it's not our task just to change people's religious label, uh, if you know what I mean by that. You, you don't fulfill the Great Commission by getting someone who was a pagan or a Muslim or a Jew or an atheist to now simply label themselves as Christian. A, a, a whole people, a whole tribe could adopt the name Christian. Oh, we're going to be Christians, and there not be a single disciple among them. The disciple has a very specific meaning. In fact, the word means to be a learner or a follower or an apprentice. It's like that. It's, it's something you're doing. You're following along. You're committing yourself to something. So a disciple has this internal desire to follow, to follow the master or follow the teacher, to learn from the teacher. And in a Christian context, then, a disciple is someone who believes in Jesus and that belief makes him or her want to follow Jesus, right? So people need the gospel. And when they receive the gospel, they need to be instructed in what it means to follow Jesus. There's times in, in church history that there was just too much emphasis put on changing the labels of people, regardless of whether they had personal faith or not. And at times it was considered enough if people just took the name Christian and um, behaved externally as Christians, sort of part of a Christian culture or a tribal group or something like that. And I'm sure that the, the thought behind all that was if you change the labels, eventually it might deepen into something more like discipleship for people, but very often that didn't happen. So that's not really a good plan. Uh, you can actually inoculate people against the real faith and personal faith if you allow them to give themselves the label Christian while their hearts remain pagan and whatever else they worship on the inside. There's so many people today, if you asked our country what your religion is, overwhelmingly the people would say Christian. But when you start digging into what that means to people, most of those, most of those people are not Christian in any biblical sense at all. That's important because they think of themselves as Christian. And that's a very dangerous place to be. So I think we see the danger of that sort of conversion, not only historically, but today. Um, 
And we have our own ways of affirming people in a faith that's not in their heart. Even evangelicals can do that. Some evangelists believe that if a person comes forward in an emotional moment in a service to receive Jesus, or if a person prays a pre-written prayer called the sinner's prayer, then that evangelistic work is done. They've got what they wanted. And another soul is saved. I've seen that happen personally many times. But we're not co commanded by Jesus here to count prayers or emotional decisions, but to make disciples. Now, the sinner's prayer is, is fine if it leads to somebody becoming a disciple. An emotional moment where somebody comes forward and receives Jesus is just fine if somebody becomes a disciple. Hopefully, those things would be an expression of the heart of faith and the new birth. That means a soul will be eternally with Jesus. But you just can't know that they are changed, that this new birth has happened, unless they become disciples. It's really important. So in our, in our church context, Act and Faith Bible Church, um, that's why we really shy away from manipulating people into making a decision, which is, I think, something just too much evangelism relies on. You know, they create a mood or use a sales technique. They, they sh um, sh Sharing the gospel, it's not like selling a car. You're not trying to get somebody to bite on what you're selling them. That's, that's not what it is, but that's how it's often treated. The greatest gift you can give people, the gospel, that has power in itself. The Holy Spirit awakens the heart through the proclaimed word. God converts the heart. And if that doesn't happen, you're very possibly giving someone who is not born from above a false belief that they have nothing to worry about because they were saved by this prayer that they prayed. That's what I mean by inoculating against the truth, against the gospel. Some people hear the gospel and they think, oh, I did that years ago. Yeah, I was three. And they've never had a thought about God ever since then. But they thought, well, I, I, I mean, no, I'm good because I did that thing they told me to do. So they just tune out anything else after that. Nothing has happened on the inside. And that's where it has to happen. So if there's no new birth, uh, there's a serious problem. That's why Jesus told the parable of the soils, because there's many kinds of people that respond to a proclamation, but only the kind that produces fruit um, is a real disciple. So that's why we emphasize here teaching the truth of God's word, the best we know how to do that, and presenting, presenting the gospel as truly as we can, faithfully as we can, but then letting the Holy Spirit do the work. So a theologian named R.C. Sproul, and he uh, passed away now, but he, um, he wrote this, and I think it's very wise. He said, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything but that which God has placed it in, his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that power is focused on the Scripture. So if you wonder why Bible is in our church name, and if you wonder why we spend all of our time teaching the Bible, that's why. That's why. Because that's where the power is. God uses that. We're, we're, we can't save people, but God can save people. We can make disciples, because when God is doing that work, when we share the gospel with someone, then we instruct them and bring them along. That's how it actually works. Okay, so remember, the, the command in this text, this wonderful text, 
the command is make disciples. So the participles define what that looks like. So the first one is going. He says, uh, having gone or going. That certainly includes people that go on the mission field, like the Apostle Paul or like many of the missionaries that we support in our church. But I think it just as much includes people that are going through the normal course of their life, moving to a new place, getting a new job, going to a new school, taking up a new hobby. Wherever we go, we need to have a desire to make disciples there. That should be what's in our heart. That should be part of what we're doing, an important part of what we're doing. Where Whenever I go do something that is not church-related, and I have. So I've been a pastor for 30 years, but I've been a 4-H leader for a number of years, many years, probably 15 or 16 years. I worked for the sheriff's department as a volunteer for five years. My wife and I go square dancing and other kinds of weird dancing all the time. Not too weird, but <laughs> ballroom dancing, stuff like that. We do all these things, but when we go, no matter what those things are, we've got in our back of our minds making disciples. In other words, we're always thinking about how, how do we present Christ? How do we share Christ? How do we make ourselves um, known as people that people can talk to if they need to about those things? How do we, how do, we do those things? That, that's a part of it. We are enjoying what we're doing. We're doing those things the way we're supposed to do them. Um, but at the same time, we're always got it in our mind to make disciples. That's just what a Christian does. That's what we're supposed to do. That's fulfilling this commandment. So it's never just the thing we're doing when we're doing. And we're not obnoxious about it, but we try to be uh, uh, representatives of Christ verbally and in our behavior all the time. We don't want to be ugly Christians, but we're comfortable. We're comfortable. It's natural to talk about something that's really important to us, like church or the Lord Jesus Christ or um, things that we do at church, those kind of things, the Bible. Um, hopefully, we sort of stand out as people who are kind and thoughtful and have self-control and have some level of integrity that can be respected. It, conversations just sort of naturally happen when you make Jesus a part of your everyday life in, in a very natural way. And if you add to that identifying people you can pray for, then God may very well start to open up conversation opportunities for you. So that's going as well. We can't all go overseas. When William Carey went to India, he um, he said, I'll go to the, I'll go to the pagans. You hold the rope. And by that, he meant you support me. You be there for me. You pray with me. And we can do it that way too. That's all part of the whole thing. But we most certainly have to be about God's business as we are going about our business. If you know what I'm saying, that should always be an element in what we're thinking about. Sometimes, um, God will just push the issue for you. He'll put something right in your face. You know, the church in Jerusalem at one point in Bible times got so heavily persecuted, the Christians just spread out. They left. They left Jerusalem when they went to other places. And what do you think they did when they went to other places? Did they say, oh, woe is me. I've been persecuted. I'm going to have to just take a whole break from this Christian thing. No, they started making disciples everywhere they went. That's why there's a church in Antioch and a churches in other parts of that world, because that's where the disciples fled to. And then they planted churches there and they started sharing the gospel with people. So wherever life takes us, and for whatever reason life takes us there, make disciples. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, some people might be thinking, I can't make disciples. I don't know enough. Well, you probably know more than somebody that's not a disciple. 
You probably know more than that. Prayer for people in your life is really good, and that helps make opportunities for you to share. And if you don't know much, bring them to people that do know. Bring them to a Bible study. Bring them to church. Do those kind of things. And if you're woefully lacking in knowledge, start learning. A disciple is a learner. That's the whole idea. That's what it, that word actually means that. So if you're a disciple, you should be a learner. You should be growing in your knowledge as well. But take the person that God has put in your life and the two of you can get together and with somebody else that does know more or whatever. You can always work out a way to disciple someone. Just make, make a point of seeing that other people learn about Christ learn sound doctrine, learn the Bible, and to love the Bible, and God will use you. That's the wonderful thing. So going, the second key participle there in verse 19 is baptizing. We do that as a church family. When a person comes to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and they receive him as their own, they are to be baptized. And Jesus says right here, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It's very Trinitarian there, pretty hard to escape. And that becomes a public declaration of their desire to be disciples, to learn Christ and serve him. The next participle describing what it means to make disciples, Jesus says, teaching them. A disciple, like I said, by definition is a learner. What are they supposed to learn? What does Jesus say? Teaching them all that I commanded you. The whole thing, the whole enchilada, as they say. Uh, Everything. All doesn't leave much out. So the disciple is committed to learning the master's trade. All there is to know. If you think of an apprentice growing up in a shop, being raised up, and the master teaches him all of his craft and all of what, all the things that he knows, it's just like that, only in a spiritual level. We're to know all that there is to know that we can know and, and labor in that, work with that, uh, teach that. So, you know, when we leave out all sorts of things, with somebody that's come to Jesus, we make a poor disciple. And if that person then goes and makes a disciple and leaves more things out, that becomes an even poorer disciple, a very poor learner, a very poor follower, a, a very weak vessel for God to use. And that really explains what goes on in a lot of American Christianity. It's very shallow. Uh, there's not a lot of Bible teaching. There's very little doctrine becomes very ineffective and very worldly. Big, popular, yeah, you can do that because you can always manipulate people into enjoying themselves. But making disciples, that's another story. That's why it really chafes me that some churches just really want their people to be superficial uh, in knowing their Bibles. They don't labor against that. They just kind of make it that way. Uh, We're exactly the opposite here. Exactly the opposite. So we who are going and making disciples have an obligation to be well informed. Now we're all at different levels of all that and that's fine, but we should be growing in our knowledge so that we can accurately teach all that Jesus commanded, right? So the disciple has an obligation to make Christ a priority in his life and learn as much as he can. Um, You know, in Acts chapter 20, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, he was talking to elders, And he reminded them, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. And then a little later in verse 27 of Acts chapter 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. See, that's a lot like Jesus talking about 
all that I've commanded you. Paul says, I told you the whole purpose of God, everything. I, I poured myself out into you. So we teach as we go, hoping to make true disciples of Christ who can in turn make other disciples. Let me tell you, nothing thrills me more than to see this process taking place. That's the greatest personal joy in my life. It really is. Those of you who completely on your own share Christ with a neighbor, plan a little Bible study, or invite people to one, or minister to your coworkers and friends, that's just a wonderful thing to see. Working with children is disciple-making. Uh, parenting is disciple-making with a capital D, right? Uh, but so is teaching Sunday school. Like even in this COVID time, Karen Gelfo is doing that online. And, and on Friday night, Sherry Laporte is here teaching the kids. On, uh, and while the, their parents are in a Bible study with adults learning about the Lord, Mark and Amber are working with teenagers to do that. It's, it's all happening. And all these people are giving self, themselves over to making disciples. So working with children is another excellent way to be a disciple maker. That's why all of these things deserve our support and our best efforts and be including ourselves in all of that. So look, I know we're all different. We all have different personalities. We all have different gifts. We have different circumstances, but we all have an obligation in some form to this final command of Jesus going as we go, make disciples. It should be clearly in our minds that this is our, our calling, our purpose, Whatever else life is, for a Christian, it is making disciples. If every Christian had that burning desire in the heart to make disciples, if that was our longing, our kind of first thoughts, the church would just explode across the world like it did in the first century in the early days when make disciples took the church from Jerusalem to Samaria to Asia Minor to North Africa, to the Mediterranean, and finally to Rome itself, and then beyond Rome, the very heart of Europe, all within a few decades, all within a few decades before modern transportation and all of that. And that's just, it's not just an ancient phenomenon. These modern Christians in certain places have the same passion Places like China, where the gospel has exploded, even under great persecution. The fact the church is growing fastest in China, where persecution is very heavy, and in Iran, where persecution is brutal. It's brutal in both places. But that's where the church is growing. How can that be? Because God is the one who does the work if we're faithful to make disciples. And when I was in China, I saw very courageous, ordinary people who are willing to go to prison to keep the gospel going forward, to make disciples. What gave those early Christians and these modern Christians the, the drive, the fearless effort, the willingness to sacrifice, even risk death to make disciples? Well, they believed these words of Jesus here, and they believed the words that conclude Matthew's gospel, the very last words, they believed Jesus, that all authority had been given to him, that they were operating always under his will and his special care. And that's where the last words of Matthew's gospel come in. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the vision of the Great Commission, what makes it great, 
is its universal scope. It's going to all nations, and Jesus will be with us to the end of the age to make it happen. There's no restraints on geography, no restraints on time. He promises to be with us to the end of the age. Is there a greater comfort than for the Son of God to say, I am with you always? I can't think of anything better than that. He will be with us as we make disciples. He will be overseeing us, caring for us, making our efforts fruitful. And it won't necessarily be an easy road. He said in many ways that we will face hatred and persecution and perhaps even death. We don't face very serious persecution in our country, but we're, we live in a culture now that really despises Christianity, real Christianity and true discipleship. So uh, we feel it. We feel it. That's happening. But he doesn't promise a road without heartache and suffering and pain, but he does promise to be with us as we travel that road. Too many people make shipwreck of their lives by not believing this promise that I will be with you to the end of the age. The Apostle Paul gave a very encouraging truth at the end of Romans chapter 8, talking about suffering for Jesus. He asks, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's the reality of Jesus' promise in Matthew working itself out in the lives of those believers that went forth. I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. Nothing can separate us from his love. He sustains us in the trials of ministry, in the sorrows of life. And of course, Jesus' promise means that we will succeed. We will succeed in doing whatever God's plan is for us to succeed in, making disciples. And even if we don't make very many, that's still, William Carey, I mentioned earlier, he had very little visible fruit from a lifetime of ministry, but he's still honored by Christians in India because he started the work. And it was an amazing thing that he accomplished, even though he didn't see a whole lot of fruit during his lifetime. It's the Lord who awakens hearts, not us. He draws men and women to himself, not us. He infuses power into his word. As the Bible said, God says God's word does not return void. So you can go confidently knowing that he will handle changing hearts and you don't have to worry about that. All you have to do is, as you're going laboring to make disciples. If it happens, that's his great work through you. If it doesn't happen, that's okay. So I would ask you this morning just to sort of take stock, review your life in terms of this greatest of commandments, the final commandment in this gospel. Are you using your time and your gifts well? Is that something that's sort of part of what you think about and do as you go? And I'm not trying to place burdens on you just trying to open your eyes to the possibilities of how God can use you to fulfill the Great Commission. I'll close with a simple question to ask yourself. Can I do something different in order to further God's kingdom by making disciples as I go? That's the only question I want you to answer for yourself. Let's pray. 
Lord, someone had a hand in making us disciples, and we thank you for them. We ask you for grace and this spirit-infused desire to pass on this greatest of blessings that we received. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.